Hello listeners, my name is James Foley. You might know me from some other podcast series on this network. In this new series, I'm going to explore alongside my colleague uh, Ewan Kerr, who works on the Endure project at Glasgow Caledonia University, the background politics of COVID-19. It's very much back in the news. And over the course of this series, we'll be talking to a number of experts and people with opinions about the issue from multiple parties in Scottish politics and who are involved in the crisis at multiple different levels. In this first episode, we are talking to Neil Findlay. As many of you will know, Neil has been centrally involved for some time in the politics of the pandemic. Firstly, as a Labour MSP, more recently because some very choice comments from our current First Minister in relation to Neil's efforts to bring scrutiny around the Scottish Government's role in the pandemic. Uh, These have become part of the overall debate which is happening right now about WhatsApp uh, in the pandemic and how this relates to themes of secrecy and scrutiny inside Scottish governance. I first asked Neil what he thought about the argument which says that Nicola Sturgeon at the time was put in an impossible position by the circumstances of emergency and disaster which were somewhat unique to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now what do you make of the argument that says well this is emergency circumstances You have human beings who are uh, tasked with making difficult, in some cases, impossible decisions. And, uh, you know, with hindsight and in retrospect, we are holding the Scottish government and Nicola Sturgeon in particular to abnormally high standards that, for instance, we would not apply to the Conservative government or other types of government around the world. No, I... I uh, Look, let me say this. These were unprecedented circumstances. It was probably the greatest crisis that we've had outside wartime. And uh, I would not have wanted to be in their shoes. Uh, and I just want to say that absolutely clearly. However, we were in a period of unprecedented, uh, in, in unprecedented times. And that does not mean that those in elected positions abandon their critical role, which is to hold the government to account. So, yes, these were unprecedented times. Yes, decisions had to be made quickly. Yes, I wouldn't have wanted to make those decisions. I accept all of that. But what I don't accept is that you abandon your role and your duty as an elected parliamentarian to hold the government of the day to account. And indeed, I would argue that in such times uh, when massive decisions have been made that impact on almost every single person in the country, it is even more imperative that people play that scrutinising role uh, 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 and take that role in holding government to account seriously. So um, I think it's more important than ever during periods of national crisis. 
In, in that regard, Neil, I mean, I suppose one of the criticisms that has um, kind of came out of the the, the COVID nineteen inquiry has has been this uh, identifying this kind of centralised, almost presidential um, style of of leadership um, from within the SNP. Um, I suppose, though, I mean, just again, devil's advocate here, you know. I suppose get in a, in a kind of crisis situation like that. Um, there probably would be a fairly good rationale to have that kind of top-down style of of kind of governance sort of thing, you know, like, like you said to yourself just there, kind of quick executive-led decisions. Um, do you think that movement then, that kind of movement during crisis periods towards that presidential style, was that necessary? Or do you think there was still then a, a vital role for the for the MSPs to be doing what they should be doing and providing more accountability than what they were but the, than what they were doing? Well, it was, you know, it, it was Nicola Sturgeon's style for it to be power for power to be held by her. Um, I mean, that is very clear very clear from day one, in fact, before day one, that that was the way in which she operated and she was going to operate. So I don't think, I think people became more aware of it during COVID rather than any there be any change. I think it just intensified during COVID. Um, so so I, I, I think that was just her natural sort of leadership style that it was going to be about her. Um, I think I, I've always seen her as quite an arrogant person who had a very um, uh, strong personal opinion of herself and her ability. And I don't think necessarily, uh, and most certainly did not see many people in the parliament as a as an equal or as a certainly not an intellectual equal or a political equal indeed within the cabinet you know I, I i can only think of you know someone like mike russell who who possibly has even a greater opinion of himself than nicola sturgeon as being the one of the few people in the cabinet, I think, who would have challenged her uh, if it if it needed challenge, but who would have seen himself uh, as a uh, political and intellectual uh, equal, or probably in Mike's eyes, superior here. And even even with the politics of this, though, I mean, the fact is that you know. That this that air of superiority, if, if that if that's what it is, you know, it wasn't really justified because we also do know from the inquiry that the Scottish government were arguably not that well prepared for the pandemic. You know, they had no reason to think that they had all the answers. You know, I think it was one of the one of the senior health ministers who was in a Cobra meeting at the time, and I've got it written here in his own notes. He said, "It's clear all departments in the UK government are fully engaged and mobilised in a way the Scottish government simply isn't." That's Quite devastating, isn't well, it? That's absolutely the case. Um, well, it's absolutely the case that the Scottish government was not prepared, not prepared at all. If you look at things like at the very beginning, PPE shortage, you know, the most basic stuff, uh, people in care homes uh, just didn't have it. If you look at the, uh, the the fiasco around testing, you know, we get to somewhere like I think it was May, April, May, and we're still only testing nine hundred people a week. Now, Nicola Sturgeon said in Parliament that Scotland 
The UK and Scotland as part of it has the greatest testing capacity of anywhere in the world. I've yet to hear any evidence of that. To me, that was just utter rubbish. I had been banging on about testing from the beginning, not because I knew anything about testing more, more than anyone else. The reason I went on about testing is from day one, the World Health Organization uh, said test, test, and test again. And we ignored it. We ignored it. We were testing a few hundred people a week at the beginning, and it took ages for that to crank up. And 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 indeed, I accused the uh, the government at times of being testing sceptics, because when you asked them about testing, they did all they could to talk it down. Jason Leach was very sceptical of um, uh, the merits of testing, um, and then of course, if you look at the uh, uh, what was happening in other countries who were testing, you know. The Koreans, for example, were at one point were testing something like seventy to hundred thousand people a week. At the same time, we were probably testing a few hundred. The Irish set up mass testing very, very quickly. You know, Scotland was floundering, nowhere to be seen. Uh, at one point in the early days, uh, as we were testing a few hundred people a week, a company in Renfrew, I think it was was exporting something like 800,000 tests a week to the US and had a Scottish government grant for doing so. Um, so, you know, they were not prepared for it. But in Sturgeon, you had a communicator, a very skilled communicator, who, who could give the impression of being organised, you know, up there every day on the platform speaking, answering questions, uh, you know, in normal times or, or, or against a, against a normal um, sort of other government to compare hers with, then they would have looked good. But they were up against the most useless and incompetent Prime Minister. And, my, I, I, well, you know, it's hard to say that now that Trust was, uh, Trust had followed them up, but, but you know, utterly useless. Uh, at communicating in a crisis situation and just, you know, Johnson just looked completely out of his depth. But a good communication strategy is not a good COVID strategy. And the two things were very, very different. Would you acknowledge, Neil, that there's maybe a risk? Um, having said all that, and it's points that I've made myself before uh, and have continued to make uh, for a number of years, Um would you acknowledge, though, that there might be a risk that we go from one type of national mythology where we have the indomitable chief mammy um, that is the epitome of good governance and everything that we contrast to, you know, the sort of libertarian wreckers, Brexiteers and so on um, in Westminster, that we sort of go from that to a sort of mood of national disappointment and disenchantment, wherein virtually everything that Sturgeon does uh, in relation to this pandemic sort of becomes uh, reinterpreted according to some sort of metric whereby she is always um, culpable and guilty and, you know, uh, responsible for all these deaths and so on and so forth without acknowledging the inherent risks. Because it seems to me that part of the problem 
that created the Sturgeon issue in the beginning is um, is less about Nicola Sturgeon herself, because one would always expect a political leader to pursue more power, um, to try and evade accountability and scrutiny and so on, as much was was permissible. Um, that is what a politician in that type of capacity is always going to try to do. But it's almost like the uh, intellectual functions of opposition and scrutiny coming from Scottish civic society and so on, more broadly, were absent. And it's almost like those have now flipped and everyone is on the bandwagon of like, oh, isn't how terrible, look how terrible Nicola Sturgeon is yeah. and uh, all yeah. this sorts of stuff. Very conveniently forgetting that many of these very same people were among the biggest cheerleaders for Sturgeon's Absolutely. good government chief Mavi status at the time. Um, do you acknowledge that we've maybe a risk of replacing one national mythology with another? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. It's the, you know, if you, I, I recall back, uh, I looked at my diary of the 23rd of May, where STV released a video of children saying thank you to Nicola Sturgeon for her handling of the pandemic. I mean, I mean, utterly bizarre. And uh, I have to reflect back on, you know, and what you're saying, I'm reflecting back on that period of taking that that scrutiny role seriously from the very outset. Um, I've always been of the opinion when the political classes um, coalesce around issues that are kind of, we're all in this together, it's national unity time and all the rest of it, then usually they're very, very wrong on things. And uh, that's where absolutely so people with a bit of an independent thought and, 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 and mind need to step in and say, wait a minute here. Now, that's not a very popular thing to do. At times, the pressure is absolutely heaped upon you. The um, abuse, uh, both inside the parliamentary chamber and outside of it, is uh, intense and, um, and none more so than at that time. Now, if you look back on that, then indeed, I would say if you look back on the whole period of Nicola Sturgeon being in power uh, as First Minister, it is only since she departed office have people found their voice in criticism of anything that she'd done. <clears throat> One very telling thing was that in the run-up to the Scottish budget, we had... Um, I think it was something like over a hundred Scottish NGOs, uh, charities, etc., uh, signing a letter openly to the First Minister saying this is what needs to be done for the Scottish economy. Never, ever, ever in a monthly Sundays would that have happened when Sturgeon was First Minister. Because these people were running for the hills. They were hiding in their bunker. You know, trying to get uh, as an opposition front bencher when I was the health, Shadow Health Secretary, I would have charities come to me and say, policy X is an absolute disaster for the people that we work with. We really need you to lead the charge and, you know, oppose this policy. And we would say, well, you know, actually, we agree with you. This is a bad decision that's going to be made. But when we go over the top, we need you to come in with quotes and, you know, speak out and whatever. And they would say, oh, absolutely, no chance of that. No, 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 we can't do that because we'll get our budget cut or 
the chief executive will get a phone call saying that we should be shut in our face. So all of those folk, um, or the overwhelming majority, were very quiet uh, during the pandemic. I'll give you a, a perfect example. Where was Age Scotland during all of the crisis? They're the, the national body that's supposed to represent older people. Where were they? Um, another example, we had a report came out towards the end of the pandemic from Amnesty at a UK level on the uh, human rights crisis affecting older people in England. It was such a good report that I got it debated in the Scottish Parliament members' business. I, I put it forward for members' business. I contacted Amnesty in Scotland and asked them where the Scottish report was. And they said, oh, we, we, we've not produced one. I said, why was that? Because the situation in Scotland at times was worse. Oh, we don't, we don't have time. So we're one of the biggest human rights catastrophes in Scotland. And a, and a major organisation like Amnesty were nowhere to be seen. So these are just two examples of where, um, when it mattered, some organisations were nowhere to be seen. But now that, you know, Miss Sturgeon is uh, safely out the door, then it appears they're all willing to give their tuppence worth. I've got a bit of problem with that. Just on that, Neil, just, I mean, I guess, like, there's different aspects to this because there's the political class and the official opposition and so on. There's a civic uh, layer that you've spoken of, the journalists, the academics, the NGOs, the charities, business, trade unions, all these types of people and their relationship to government. And then there's the sort of popular layers of people. And one of the peculiarities of the pandemic is how effective, in some ways, it was and rehabilitating Sturgeon's reputation at a popular level. If you look at the polls that were conducted when she left office, it's pretty much the only positive memory um, that ordinary people have of the Sturgeon era in terms of practical achievements. And actually, you can find polling evidence right up to last month showing that that continues to be the case in relation to uh, the way that people perceive the SNPs um, time in office. But you're also starting to get, I think, um, the pendulum swinging the other way with that. I think probably best represented by the COVID bereaved uh, families, who are just ordinary people. Um, and it's somewhat tragic, I think, to watch uh, some of the things that they're saying, because it seems like they genuinely did believe um, in the idea of there being this really fundamental Scottish exception this massive dividing line between Sturgeon and the broader Scottish governance community versus the records and libertarians and so on um, in Westminster. And it's those people who are expressing most violently their profound disappointment with the reality of what they are discovering um, in terms of the mundane processes of decision-making that are going on inside government in Scotland. Mm. Yeah, I mean... I have to say the the, the, the care home relatives Scotland, uh, who I dealt with a lot during that period, are absolutely magnificent people. Um, they were going through um, 
the daily trauma, uh, um, trying to deal with their their mums, their grandparents, their friends, relatives, neighbours, being uh, some dying number, quite a quite a large number dying. Uh, people not being able to see them at the last minute uh, or at all. Um, the stories from the front line in that t- at that time are absolutely horrific. You know, multinational um, or, or major care home providers like HC1, um, the treatment of people within their care homes at, time, at times utterly appalling. And people not being able to get access to see their their elderly loved ones. Um, some people being being told, "Well, you know, your your mum's dying. Would you like us to put a Zoom call on so you can watch her dying?" And um, people getting in, eventually getting into a care home care room care home room, and there was a mattress lying on the bed lying on the floor beside the bed and I'm asking what's the mattress there for and one of the staff members saying well that's in case your mum falls out of the bed because nobody would be sitting there um, as she died um, people having do not resuscitate notices put on, on their uh, on them without their either their knowledge or their family's knowledge these things were happening all the time and uh, I think it took you know, it took brave people to start to highlight these things and start to campaign on them for there to be even any semblance of a change in practice, but also a, a kind of change in the perception of what was going on. Um, and um, it doesn't surprise me the uh, the language that they are using uh, uh, when they find out what ha- has actually been going on compared to what they were told was going on. So, yeah, uh, um, I, I think I have tremendous respect uh, for the people who are involved there and um, I think they are hurting very badly and they've got every right to be. Yeah, I mean, I guess like one can ask or uh, one skeptics have said to me, well, why did they believe this national mythology in the first place? But when it comes to the operations of government for ordinary people, they do depend to a large extent on intermediary intermediary layers of reporters, um, what goes on in terms of opposition inside the parliament and how that's reported and how all this is processed and so on. They are prisoners of all of that stuff that's going on. Um, And therefore, there's a duty, I think, of some variety or other of those people who have those types of position of intellectual responsibility to challenge maybe more than they were willing to do so official narratives of power. Um, I wanted to come on a little bit to your own uh, role in all this drama, uh, Neil. Um, you, the first minister, uh, the current first minister, used some particularly choice um, language um, in relation to yourself in a conversation with Jason Leach. I would like it probably put on the record that I would be deeply disappointed if people in power didn't consider me to be an arsehole. Um, yes. I think that's part of the duty 
of yep. people uh, who are outside these kind of parameters of power. But I guess what is revealing about that is um, it's almost like they expect deference from people who are in uh, an official capacity of opposition in terms of the parliament. And not only that, but any attempt by people who are in that official capacity to achieve the most basic terms of accountability that one could hope for is perceived by definition as hostility and in some sort of abnormal type of behaviour. Absolutely. I mean, can I say, you know, I live in a working class mining community. Um, I went to uh, ordinary secondary school um, being called an arsehole and a twat uh, is not new to me. Indeed, my wife said, I call you worse than that on a daily basis. Um, so, I, I, not a big deal. Um, in fact, I, have, I would say it's only January and I actually made my year because I do I do regard it as a badge of honour that uh, it appears that... Uh, it, I was causing them so much discomfort that they, they were taking their time. All that was going on, all that was going on, to be sending tittle-tattle to each other about what they thought of me. So I, I think that shows how thin-skinned they are. Um, but what concerns me about all of that is that you've got people who, like Hamza Yousaf, who was clearly aspiring to high office, Jason Leach clearly aspiring to high positions and achieving high positions in his uh, his field, and they appear to have such thin skins that they were they they couldn't accept being held to account, and that being held to account equates being an arsehole or a twat, whereas actually being held to account should be what they expect on a daily basis. If you don't expect to be held to account, well, please fuck off and find another job because this one ain't for you. That's not what you should be. That's, that's not where you should be if you think that your role in Parliament is for people to stand up and say, Minister, aren't you fantastic? What a wonderful job you are. And by the way, the next time you see that guy, Mr Leach, tell him how super he is as well. If that's the role of Parliament, let's just pack it all in tomorrow. And I think back to, you know, some of the absolute giants of parliamentary democracy who made their name doggedly pursuing causes and cases. I think of people like Tam Dale, who had Thatcher on the verge of resigning over the Bill Grano, and people who pursued issues of Relate. Look at the post office scandal. What do, what, what do we say to the people in that? You should have, no, just shut your face. The only thing you should be there for is to tell the minister or tell um, MPs that they're brilliant or think of all the miscarriages of justice that there's been over the years where people have went out on a limb and not been popular, not been doing it for popularity's sake. You know, think of people like Chris Mullen who pursued the Birmingham Six at a time when that would have been extremely unpopular to pursue these cases, but doggedly believed they were right and weren't prepared to shut up about it. And 
if ministers are so thin-skinned that they cannot accept that that's a hugely vital role at any time in the parliamentary process, but even more so at a time in national crisis, then I really think they should be away and doing something else because parliament's not the place for them. I mean, you know, politics is a tough business, but bloody should be a tough business. It really should. We're dealing with people's lives here. We're people dealing with people's families, their parents, their businesses, their homes, their, you name it. We're dealing with the most important things relating to, uh, you know, our fellow citizens. And if we reduce them to that to name calling tittle-tattle, then that's a really, a really serious thing. And what actually is more concerning about that is that um, if you, when I raised with Gene Freeman and Nicola Sturgeon regularly, the care home scandal, I would get back from them quite regularly. You do not care about care homes. You do not care about the people within them. You're only wanting to make political points. You're only wanting to, uh, you know, have a political slanging match. And, you know, they knew my mum was in a care home. They knew that my wife and daughter were NHS workers going out every day on the front line. My brother's a multiple sclerosis sufferer. He's been chronically ill for 30, but about 30 years. He's, he's now in a care home. So I had immediate members in my family who were extremely vulnerable. Now, I wasn't any different than anybody else. Hundreds and thousands, tens of thousands of families were in exactly the same position as me. But in those days when we were locked up and where we weren't, weren't seeing people and finding stuff out, finding that out through your own family channels was massively important. So finding out what was going on in hospitals or finding out what was going on in the care home or whatever was hugely important. And as it transpired, the more I asked those questions, the more people would contact me from all over Scotland, many of them know my constituents, who were saying, well, at last somebody's asking these questions. And as I say, that wasn't easy to do because there was a feeling of we're all in this together at the start and, oh, here it goes, just, just mouthing off again. But actually all of those issues that were being raised were extremely serious and a lot of them have come out in the inquiry. A lot of them haven't even been even mentioned in the inquiry and I hope will come out in further modules of the inquiry or in the Scottish inquiry because, you know, the whole issue around testing, the care home discharge policy, the uh, uh, the DNR notices, all of that stuff hasn't gone in, been gone into in any real depth. Um, the final thing I would say is the thing that's angered me the most about all of this is that I pursued Freeman and Sturgeon time and time and time again, asking them, will you now accept that the care home discharge policy was a mistake? And I must have asked that question God knows how many times. And every time, whether I put it in writing, whether I said it, whether I asked it as a parliamentary question, whatever, I got, you know, brushed away, brushed away. On the 8th of April, when Parliament went into recess for the election and Jean Freeman was safely outside of the Scottish Parliament, she went on the Nick Robinson show and admitted that the care home discharge policy was a mistake. 
Now, to me, that was absolutely shameful. When she's safely outside the parliamentary scrutiny, she admits that a policy that I had tried to pursue her for, for probably two years was wrong, and yet she could not admit that inside Parliament and put that on the record, and I find that disgusting. Thanks for that, Neil. I'm, I'm conscious of time. Um, I wonder, though, just, just to pick up on something you mentioned there and kind of maybe broaden this out a little bit, I was... I was having a, a couple of drinks with some mates that I meet up quite regularly and we all kind of work in higher education or public um, uh, public sector or, you know, local councils and stuff like that. And we do find ourselves whinging a lot about things around this, about, around a, a culture of complacency or a, a culture of kind of, um, you know, th th this idea that we're, we, we can't really do these things very well in Scotland, you know, it seems that we're not well served by our political kind of, like, you know, I'm, I'm obviously there's, all, there's always exceptions to that. Um, I, you know, my sympathies lie with the Labour Party more than most and, you know, names like, you know, uh, Mercedes Vialba and, you know, uh, you know, Paul Sweeney, you know, these people are, are really good MSPs, but it does seem that across the parliament and across public life in general, we are we're poorly served by um, by people who should be like like you're saying holding um, holding the, the powerful to account. Is that something you, you see in wider Scottish life as opposed to just the the, the Parliament and just over? Well, COVID I think the Parliament's I think the Parliament's pretty blind for it, and I th and I actually think this session of the Parliament's the worst it's been, um, and that's the nature of the way the political parties operate. Um, you look at the way in which. The Labour Party itself is um, uh, selecting candidates for the Westminster election. You know, they have absolutely filleted out anyone from the left of the party. They've filleted out anyone you would think who would have a bit of sort of independence of mind. Um, God, we even had a guy who's not allowed to stand because he wrote some book that was about zombies or some bloody thing. I mean, it's just absurd. It's absurd. And if you want to create a parliament of um, automatons who will just do, as we've seen all through the Salmond and Sturgeon years uh, in the SNP, with um, no alternative viewpoint, who are at the mercy of the whips all the time, who will just do as they say, and so be it, until, as we see with the SNP, a bit of civil war breaks out and suddenly they acquire a backbone, um, then that's the way, the, the way that parties are doing it just now is the way to go about it. And it is extremely bad for our democracy. It's extremely bad for accountability uh, and, uh, and the plurality of their politics. Um, and it is really creating a parliament, I think, that is very dull. Uh, now, but it's not necessarily there to create excitement. But if it's going to be the, the main political forum of the country, it should be a place of ideas. It should be a place of competing ideas, uh, debate, argument, scrutiny. Uh, and it should be a place where the public have got some input and where their ideas come forward at the moment it, it, it's none of that and it looks a very tired dull uninspiring place and i really regret that because it shouldn't be like that
Neil, I wanted to ask you about a couple of subplots that seem to be going on around the inquiry, uh, in particular surrounding Nicola Sturgeon's involvement in it. Um, first one, um, and I think this probably does account for a lot of the viciousness on both sides, um, is the subplot surrounding the ongoing investigations into the SNP for other issues, uh, whether financial impropriety, the branch form investigation, or the circumstances of the uh, the initial Salmond trial and everything um, connected to that. But I also wanted to focus on another aspect, which is the perceptions around Scottish independence. Um, those of us on this call might have different uh, viewpoints on that, which is absolutely fine. But one perception of mine is that like, much of the scrutiny is going to this idea that Nicola Sturgeon, Liz Lloyd and others were sort of deranged by the question of trying to pursue independence as quickly as possible and at all costs. The evidence base for that, I think, is relatively slim, particularly when you take into account the circumstances of the fact that there had been the whole Brexit process that we had just come through. The British state had arguably just come through uh, what had been one of its biggest ever peacetime crises, only to be launched into another one. There were all these questions surrounding Boris Johnson's leadership and all these other things. In some ways, it's surprising they weren't talking about independence more um, in some respects um, in all these private communications as far as I can see it. But I guess part of, I think, the problem that this bears on in terms of the way that government works in Scotland is that the scrutiny process tends to work on the assumption that we have one team that is recklessly pursuing independence at all costs, and another team that is, you know, opposed and in the perception perhaps of others uh, is, you know, pursuing Brexit at all costs and so on and so forth. And very often I think this tends to legislate against the sort of more mundane aspects of scrutiny around governance processes in Scotland itself, because everything becomes subordinated to the master narrative of like, well, everything's about independence, everything's about Brexit, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And that might, to me, explain why there was a particular viciousness uh, directed towards yourself, um, insofar as you were asking difficult questions that didn't really necessarily bear on those narratives. And in effect, I think much of parliamentary life in, uh, in Holyrood has sort of revolved itself into these two teams and camps that were pursuing these overall narratives in relation to Scottish politics, rather at the expense of critiquing what government was actually doing. And you were unusual in having asked difficult questions about these other aspects of government. Hmm. Um, so there's a couple of things on that. <clears throat> the scenario you paint where, you know, you have, you know, depending on your viewpoint, the big baddies pursuing independence and the, other, the you know, the other side desperate, uh, you know, to, to prevent it. Um, that, that, that scenario suits the SNP and it suits the Tories. Plays exactly into their, um, their core voters, uh, boo hiss, lob bricks at each other's side and it will all serve their own purpose. Um, 
doesn't particularly serve the purpose to the public, I would suggest. And what what I think has been wholly depressing over the last, you know, 20 years or so is that there is no desire whatsoever, never has been. Nicola Sturgeon said she was going to set up some kind of, I can't remember what she called it, but um, basically coming together of people to discuss the Constitution. Um, never happened. No intention of it happened. But it happened in Wales. Mark Drakeford set up the Commission on the Future of the, uh, Wales and, you know, from the start said that independence would be considered by that group. And that was a very, that I think that showed the stark difference and the level of maturity of the politics between what's happening in relation to constitutional politics in Wales and Scotland. <clears throat> that he could happily appoint people like Leanne Wood and others uh, on to that commission, and they could happily accept a place in it. No any abstentionism or, you know, any of that stuff, and no apparent attempt by him to fix the result, that he actually genuinely wanted it to be a representative group of people with all shades of opinion who would talk through serious issues and discuss them seriously. I think that was um, a very mature and sensible way in which to do things and it is absolutely, you know, conspicuous by its absence in Scotland. Uh, and I, I just, I just could not imagine it happening here, in the current climate. And that's sad. That's, I think, that's really sad. It's pretty grim. <laughs> in terms of the, um, the scrutiny in Parliament, I think before I went in to Parliament, I, uh, you know, you got this. Um, narrative fed to you that uh, one of the gems of the parliament is the committee system, the all-powerful committee system that scrutinises this and does the, does this and all, you know, absolute garbage, utter rubbish. You have the committee system in the Scottish Parliament is almost, you know, always uh, divides if there is division down parliamentary lines, party lines. Uh, I can't recall there being many votes where, you know, somebody breaks away from their party's position, certainly not the government side anyway. Um, the, the, the committees, you know, depending on the makeup of them and the chair and whatever, uh, Will determine how uh, you know how independent of thought they are, but generally not much. So I'm not someone who buys really that kind of myth that these all-powerful committees hold people to account and ministers are trembling as they come before them and all that stuff. It just doesn't bear up to any reality. And if you compare that with the parliamentary committees at Westminster, where a lot of the time people do break away from their uh, uh, party position hold very independent uh, views um, certainly a lot of them really hold people to account and get stuck in about them and uh, and, and are pretty powerful committees and I think um, I think a lot of people would be kind of trembling at the prospect of uh, going and giving evidence before them so I think there's a real need for the parliament to uh, reconsider whether there does need to be some sort of 
um, scrutiny role, whether that's a second chamber or whatever, I'm not so sure. But uh, but it certainly needs looked at. Definitely needs looked at. I wonder if just as a very very last thing, if if you could just kind of reflect for us. I mean, you mentioned there about the strengthening the measure of scrutiny and such like. Um, you know, is, is there any other significant changes? One other significant change that you could think that would improve Scotland in terms of its in terms of going forward and, and to respond to future crises? But there one other thing in addition to the strength and scrutiny that you recommend? Well, there's a couple of things just reflecting on that. Um, you know, we had two COVID uh, emergency bills went through. Um, these got rammed through within uh, two or three days. Um, I remember at one point between. I think it was stage one and stage two, the bill, we had two hours to put forward amendments. Two hours to put forward amendments. Now, this was at a time when the government was talking about suspending the right to a jury trial. <laughs> you know, um, they were going to suspend the entire FOI system. You know, there was not a cat in hell's chance I would have voted for suspension of jury trial. Not a chance. Uh, uh, and so there, there, there was massive decisions being made. And when it came to the second COVID legislation, <laughs> I moved amendments, for example, to bring in collective bargaining to the social care system. I took any opportunity to advance progressive causes, and, and this bill was coming forward. And I got absolutely lambasted by Mike Russell, telling me that it was impossible, impossible, we could not do it. It just was not possible. We could put men on the moon, but we just could not bring in collective bargaining in the care homes sector. Uh, and a whole load of other guff that he came away with just to attack me because I was trying to make what that bad piece of, that piece of legislation better. Um, I've just had a wee quick scout a note that I wrote earlier. And uh, another example of appalling scrutiny the Lord Advocate came in at one point on the 13th of May to uh, uh, give a statement on how they were going to record COVID deaths because people were worried that they were being recorded wrong. The entire parliament had 10 minutes to question the Lord Advocate. Now, is that scrutiny, I ask you? Now, if we go on to other areas, for very good reasons, I think, the parliament puts restrictive time on speeches. So you don't have half hour or hour speeches or any of that stuff and filibuster and all that kind of stuff that went on at Westminster. But, you know, I'll give you an example. We have the, let's say we had the uh, the, the COVID emergency legislation. The presiding officers would say, right, we have the COVID emergency legislation. This is going to affect everybody in the country. Umpteen pieces of legislation going through, amendments, da da da. Mr. Finlay, you've got six minutes. <laughs> so what can you address in six minutes that relates to such a massive, massive issue? Now, that's where having 15 minutes or 20 minutes to develop ideas, to develop a critique or an analysis would really benefit you. But you get chopped off at six minutes because you're a backbencher and that's it. So where is the kind of flexibility within the system that allows much greater levels of debate and scrutiny, especially when such important stuff is going through? And uh, so the parliament isn't flexible enough to allow that to happen. And uh, I think that's wrong. 
other examples, you know, uh, at the Easter of uh, the period of lo uh, lockdown, uh, I called for Parliament to be recalled uh, because of the rise in COVID deaths to discuss it. Uh, I called for Parliament to be recalled quite a few times during the holidays for when certain things happened. The discretion of that is at the presiding officer. I mean, you basically got a, a, an email back saying, no, we're not recalling Parliament. End off. Um, now, it wasn't for me to determine whether it should be recalled, but I certainly made that request. Now, again, very precious about holidays and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, these were big, big, these were big, big decisions that were being made. And, you know, if a holiday comes up, is it just to say, well, we'll just have the holiday instead of having absolute scrutiny of what the hell's going on? So these are kind of ways in which I think there's, a, you know, the, the way and inflexibility of Parliament uh, caused problems. The other issue, of course, is that where you have um, senior people in, advisory, in an advisory capacity who then some suggest get involved in political decision-making, and then how do you hold them to account? So, for example, Professor Leach and, and you know, Catherine Calderwood and these types of people, how are they held to account for their decision-making when clearly they were absolutely central to it? So, these are just some of my observations. You know, can I just ask a final question, if we've got the time? I hope we do. Um, Obviously, what we're getting here is a reappraisal of the legacy of Nicola Sturgeon. This is happening on uh, multiple um, levels. Um, I still think there's a much deeper reappraisal to be had about the actual policy legacy of uh, the Scottish National Party during her time in office, particularly relating to big commitments like the poverty-related attainment gap, uh, over which I think it was relatively superficial. Progress at best. Uh, I had once worked on the project, um, and that remains my kind of big reflection on that. And there's a number of other things like that that you could uh, list. But certainly internationally, and I think in the country as well, Nicola Sturgeon uh, was very much bound up with the reputation of uh, the Scottish government, um, the Scottish Parliament, indeed, and then beyond that, a sort of generalised idea of a governance community, uh, where in Scotland we seem to be exceptional, different, somewhat Nordic leaning relative to the you know uh, perception that surrounds Westminster. We're now starting to see Sturgeon exposed in terms of her legacy, um, attacks on her character, whether fair or unfair, issuing from Parliament, from journalists, from members of the public involved in the inquiry, and all these other things. How is this likely to affect the reputation of Scottish institutions? And do you think that there will be a case for whether legal reforms, reform to the way that devolution works, um, or anything else in the wake of some of these investigations that have been happening? Well, I mean, if you look at the way the country's been governed, if you look in every corner of your public services, they're in an absolute diabolical state. If you look at education, the attainment gap's growing. If you look at uh, the NHS, we've got record waiting times, we've got crises in recruitment, you've got mental health crises, uh, uh, crisis, you've got uh, 
a social care crisis, um, if you look at areas such as social work, where, you know, the uh, uh, social work and, and the whole poverty agenda, poverty is increasing, hunger is increasing, homelessness is increasing, we've got a housing crisis, uh, and the arts and culture, we've seen libraries closing, swimming pools closing, you know, our public realm is in a diabolical state, the roads are awful, and we're missing climate targets. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on how badly uh, the country has been served and how all the indicators, the majority of the indicators are going in the wrong direction. So in that scenario where you've got people in institutions who have by choice or by diktat, have gone along with the prevailing agenda that somehow there is a great Scottish exceptionalism and it's all just a much better here, it doesn't stand up to even the most, you know, elementary uh, scrutiny. So therefore, a lot of these people, I think, in the, in the institutions have got major questions to answer. I sat on a health board for a year and uh, was seeing every day uh, or every week the statistics coming through about people attempting to access services. Now, the people at the top of the health board were doing their bloody damnedest to try and improve the situation under appalling circumstances that they did not create, but um, have been left holding the baby. While those who made the decisions, whether it be cut budgets or you know centralised services or you know have recruitment freezes, cut council tax, all of that kind of stuff, uh, freeze council tax, uh, savage local government budgets, all of which has an impact on things like health. Um, these people will be long gone whilst the people in the front line are still trying to shore up um, what the, 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 the consequences of their decision making. And uh, I think long-standing and in some cases possibly irreparable, irreparable damage has been done to some of these institutions. That greatly saddens me. None more so than local government, which I think is beyond any other, um, the service that has been decimated the most and where no one in government that I saw in my time understood it, understood the transformative role, the, the, the way in which local government is the front line in the fight against poverty and inequality, the way in which services uh, that have been provided over the years, whether that be Youth services, services for, you know, lunch clubs and food co-ops, all of these wee things, wee bits of a jigsaw that come together to support people in their community have been systematically stripped out and people wonder why the indicators are going in the wrong direction. It is just, it, it's breathtaking and it's catastrophic what's happened to local government.
Great stuff. Thank you for that, Neil. Um, I think we've now had you for an hour and 15 minutes. So thank you so much for your generosity today. And it's been a really, really interesting discussion. And I'm sure uh, everyone's going to take a lot away from uh, what we've heard there. So thank you very much. I created a 